Hey folks, welcome back in to the Esports Network podcast, our long-form version of the shows where we talk about anything and everything esports and gaming related, whether that's from, you know, you're the latest in Overwatch League nonsense or maybe something crazy happened, uh, another investor from a uh, big sports team came on, or maybe you want to get into the nitty-gritty, the you know, the the anthropological side of it, if you will, of esports and gaming. And here to help me do that, let's bring on Logan McLaughlin, gaming ethnographer. He, uh, he He's here to help me explain what's going on with this evolution of gaming and esports. So, Logan, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Kevin. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing all right, man. I got like something stuck in the back of my throat right now, and it's just, it is bothering me, but it's not going to affect me during this interview. I promise. I promise you that. You deserve, <laughs> you deserve the best from me. So I'm being honest. Please do. Please do. Um, Logan, you graduated uh, Florida State University, BS in anthropology, double major in humanities from UNT, my alma mater, Goman Green, master's of science in applied anthropology. You got a background, like I said, anthropology. You're a consultant uh, in terms of esports and gaming spaces for various companies. You've helped on various projects. It's a heavy workload uh, and, and a heavy resume that I've seen you popped out there. So what is it exactly that you do and how does it relate to anthropology and gaming? Okay, so to start on the anthropology angle, um, because that tends to be kind of where people trip up the most. So broadly speaking, for anyone who didn't take an intro to anthropology course in college, high school, wherever, um, anthropology is the study of peoples and cultures, extant, extinct, whatever, four fields of anthropology, cultural, linguistics, Physical, which has to deal with, you know, human anatomy, bones, paleo ancestors, etc., and archaeology. I lean more towards the culture side, uh, even though my BS was more of an archaeological one. And I study cultures of people online, primarily. So the applied part of that degree in applied anthropology means that instead of focusing on generating research at an academic level, Mm -hmm. I focus on using that research and applying it to business cases. So concrete example of what my thesis was for grad school, I worked on the design of self-driving cars. Oh, wow. They have to interact with people. They have to interact with things on the road. So understanding how human beings interact on the road in a cultural sense helps designers build smarter vehicles because they'll interact in a human way. So case in point, that's kind of the easy, easy, the uh, <laughs> easy explanation of what anthropology is. How that relates to gaming is that the gaming world, contrary to the belief of uh, some people, is a wide and diverse place made of hundreds of different small communities, subsections, cultures, etc. Okay. Helping people understand the practices of those cultures, the way they behave, the way they interact, the events they like to go to. Helps people build more sustainable relationships with those communities, especially as we see more and more external corporate involvement, sponsorship involvement, etc. in these spaces that have kind of grown up from community roots. So I like to see myself as kind of an advocate for those communities and a researcher for my clients Okay, to help them build sustainable relationships. Okay. And so you pretty much, these clients you work for, they're trying to really delve into that gaming space and, and get a, a bit of a grasp on what exactly it is, that, that whole culture a, cultural aspect of it. And so they, they, they bring you on to kind of help explain that to them and kind of bridge that gap. Am I right? Exactly. And it's not just in an esports sense. It can be in a general gaming sense. I've helped people 
build better events just by monitoring, you know, how people move through the show floor of an event Mm -hmm. or understanding, you know, what makes a good tournament for people from a cultural standpoint. Why are people there? I even did a project last year with a French bank um, about how people make money online. So that was talking all about virtual economies. So whether it was trading Counter-Strike skins or professional mod makers, it's all about the understanding of kind of the rich human experience element. Wow. So so here's here's my question then right this is obviously a new kind of field that you're kind of exploring you're kind of the uh, the the first one through the through the, through the door if, if so to speak right one of the first ones i imagine how have companies um seen the gaming and esports scenes before this and and how has it changed since you've been involved so it's interesting gaming and esports kind of in my time is something that has become more and more kind of culturally mainstream especially if we consider sort of the general online culture boom of everything, right? Yes. And so as we look at external powers coming in, right? Monetization, investment, et cetera. Oftentimes, I will never forget a term that happened in one of my first consulting projects where someone referred to the gaming demographic, quote unquote, as wealthy millennials. Oof. (laughs) I'll let that set in. Um, This is a paradigm that I have encountered pretty much my entire career at this point is this idea that to some degree, there's this concept of gaming as like a lost demographic of like the people that aren't watching TV or consuming traditional advertising. And it's, it's weird Mm -hmm. because from a groups of people standpoint, you're talking a lot about like the communities that people interact in, right? the games that they play, the Discord servers they belong to, before that, the forums, the WoW guilds, etc. But now there's kind of this shift that people are going in of like, we need to monetize this as a demographic. And you see that in data analytics, you see that in this idea that kind of the gaming space is a bottomless well, that right. like you just go and the money flows from it because there's, you know, unlimited esports money. <laughs> somehow, somewhere. Somehow, somewhere. And that's been... One of the things that it's like, the more it changes, the more it stays the same. Where the bigger events have gotten, the more we've seen kind of things go mainstream and get bigger, the more that paradigm seems to kind of come in, Mm -hmm. which is awkward, um, being someone who studies communities, because it is a reductionism in some ways. It's a reductionism of like community or event or people into consumer number fan and even the terminology around it changes which from a linguistics perspective is very interesting because it's almost like a a separation right for of the people from the thing that they participate in interesting that's that's so interesting to me just the the reductionism from a i guess a corporate standpoint is just kind of something we've seen more over the years it's more like you're you're a statistic you're a number people develop algorithms around what that number you know does Mm -hmm. and so it's just crazy to me that it's 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 so ingrained now it's it's affecting esports uh and gaming in general really not just not just the esports scene but really anything like that but these companies i mean they really just is it is it a, a lack of of understanding on their part when they when they quote unquote put people in in these uh what's it called the 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 millennial wealthy millennial gamers you know stereotype is it is it more just like they don't understand it because it's they don't see it or is it just you know i mean it's classic you you don't you don't know what's on the other side of the fence until you've like peeked over 
It's in some ways a lack of context. Um, mm-hmm. It's a lack of context. A lot of these people are coming from backgrounds that are external or from like legacy entertainment, old sports, old media, whatever, mm-hmm. and moving into gaming because it's kind of the next hot thing. And because it's become kind of mainlined entertainment by sheer force of people interacting with it, which is the weird part, because then you have people from the monetary side that are like, but we can then force this to happen Mm. by just dumping enough money into something. We can force something to get bigger or go mainstream or whatever. Um, It's a lack of context. It's also, I jokingly, from an anthropological history standpoint, see it almost as like an echo of colonialism, colonialist sentiment Mm -hmm. of like, ah, the new world full of resources. And it's this understanding of like, because it's new and not very well understood in a business sense, Mm -hmm. it, the relationship can become very exploitative, very fast of like, we're the company, we're the money, we're the funding. We come in and like, we make the rules now. Yep, no, that's a, that's a good way to put it. I mean, and going back to your point of colonialism, you see the the quote unquote new world discoverers becoming mm-hmm. kind of the uh, the rule makers there as well, you know. And so they kind of exactly. took it upon themselves to teach these quote unquote savages, and you know they don't know any better. We have to teach them. We have to you know help them find an, an, a new religion, help them find a new way of, of determining market value of things. And just exactly, it kind of it, it's it's overlap, right? There's a bunch of overlap there between the mm-hmm. two worlds and. It's funny, 500 years ago versus now, it's just the insane how things, things change, but then sometimes they don't really change, right? On a, on a surface level, yeah. things are always consistently changing, but deep down, our, 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 our kind of our habits, our, our, our sense of you know, thinking doesn't mm-hmm. really change all that much. But you know, you, you, you know about this because you've studied anthropological history. So I'm assuming yes. you know, you've studied the history of gaming as well, you know, from the 80s and, and, and 70s, the, mm-hmm. the rise of the arcade. To the 90s, yep. where in the, you know, the home console was the main thing until t- now, when PC gaming, virtual gaming, online gaming has really taken over the space. I mean, what's the next step for gaming, you think, uh, under this you know, regime of, of corporations and markets trying to get their foot in the door? It's interesting, right? Because we're, mm-hmm. we're at a point where, and one of the things that I've been studying recently, kind of on my own working on just sort of some project portfolio work to have out there is small to medium sized streamers. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you look at the trajectory of these things, whether it be events, esports, so it all starts from a community standpoint where you have groups of people gathering and banding together around things that they enjoy. So you look at like the beginnings of conventions or of land parties. I mean, you look at the beginning of dream hack, right? Mm-hmm. Huge land event now started off as just a land right. and then grew from there kind of organically. But the paradigms that you have now coming in are things like Overwatch League or Structured Leagues, where, to complete the colonialism colonialism metaphor, you end up with this idea of like, oh, you should just make it more like traditional sports. Mm-hmm. I'm from traditional sports, and this works, and it's very monetizable and very profitable. Just make it like traditional sports, and it'll be fine. And... You see those sorts of things happening. You also see that kind of stuff happening with like streaming websites, YouTube, whatever, where it's mostly a lot of the decision making is based off of sponsors, advertisers, revenue, etc. And so I think until we see some competition mm-hmm. happening, those communities are kind of going to get sidelined a little bit. Right. 
which is hard because you then end up in a standpoint where like the games that people love, the games that people play becomes something that is viewed more in a consumerist light. It's viewed more as something that like you're here to consume the entertainment that we give to you, mm. not to have passion around the thing that you enjoy. No, that's, that's such an interesting point you just brought up because I, I come from the world of traditional sports media. You know, I, I worked for a traditional sports radio station for the better part of five, seven years at this point. And so when I moved into this kind of esports space, I had to keep in mind, like, these are two different worlds. I had to keep in mind two different communities that occasionally overlap, but at mm-hmm. the same time, I can't sideline one and bring the other one in as the kind of headliner. I have to find a balancing act, right? And mm-hmm. so with esports journalism nowadays, back then, 10 years ago, esports journalism was, you know, a bunch of quote-unquote bloggers trying to, you know, figure out maybe uh, a developer's kind of breaking news or breaking mm-hmm. news on trades and all that. And today, it's kind of been evolved a little bit to t- incorporate some more of the traditional sports journalism aspects of it. And so, personally, I mean, I just think it has to be a, not, not really a balance, but just kind of an assimilation of the best parts of, of both worlds to kind of create this better community at the end of it, which I'm sure might still sideline some communities. But what are your thoughts on, on that kind of angle where you take the best of both worlds and still kind of make your own thing out of it? I think that that angle, you know, that syncretic angle is kind of the natural course of things in mm-hmm. some ways, right? Because, you know, there's a lot, broadcast is a great example. There's a lot that esports broadcast can learn and has taken from, you know, sports broadcast, but that doesn't mean that you've got to convert, you know, your esports broadcast into your standard, like, football commentary broadcast, exactly. etc. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because you see a lot of, you know, in the business space, especially people talking about wanting to move things more in like a TV production style direction mm. around esports when a lot of the established practices come from people who had very little background in broadcast, kind of figured out as they went along. And have developed, you know, use cases for specific games that work for those games. You know, like a play-by-play in Dota 2 that they do after the round where they're circling things on the map, walking you through the entire thing, because it's an extremely complex game. Mm-hmm. Works well for the design affordances of that game and of the spectator mode of that game. Right. But then you've got other stuff where, you know, you're switching around how the highlights work and kind of trying to mirror a more traditional sports broadcast because it's familiar. It's comfortable for the people that are providing funding or background or whatever, rather than kind of innovative. So I think that, you know, in natural course, you're going to see some of that hybridization. Um, Right now, most of the parts that are very overbearing come from like the advertising and monetization side. Yes. I would say, as opposed to the practice side. No, I would, I would, I would agree. It's uh, trying to fit the same shoe on a different foot, if you will. (laughs) Yes, but um, it's interesting you bring that up because that kind of marketing angle, I think, is still being explored by a lot of uh, companies nowadays. And so with the rise, I guess, of, you know, the Internet personality, does that make that kind of marketing easier or harder for companies to get into the gaming and esports scene? Because nowadays it's more of, you know, you get a personality, you get yourself a Tim the Tatman, you get yourself... uh, an XQC or um, PewDiePie or something like that to kind of break into the space a little bit easier and, and 
from there you spread you spread the roots a little bit more and plant yourself. Is that kind of the path that more of these companies should take, or is it just kind of a natural, uh, I guess, conclusion for them? Well, this is the thing that's interesting, right? Is because mm-hmm. if we look at influencers broadly speaking, mm-hmm. we look at these internet personalities. There are ones that, due to sort of the pressures around kind of that culture of monetization, are brands unto themselves now, right? Right. Your ninjas, your it's a, they're huge, they're massive. When I interview people and talk about streamers, they're not necessarily ones that are actively watched, but they're known about, they're put on in the background, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when you dive into like what people are actually watching and interacting with, there's kind of two layers, right? Because there is that, you know, I consume the content, I put the stream on in the background, whatever layer. And then there's a layer of like smaller to mid-sized streamers, influencers, whatever, that people feel they have a close interaction with. Mm -hmm. And when I talk to people, because most of my job is like interviewing people on the ground, asking about their experiences, talking to them about what they do, how they do it. It always seems to come back to people kind of have these pockets of community that they've developed themselves or that they've taken active involvement in. And those pockets of community can be you know, a streamer who's got less than a thousand people viewing them at any given time. Mm-hmm. Because as a human being, you feel closer to that community. There's more chat interaction. The discord maybe is not moving at a million miles an hour and is better moderated. <laughs> like there's these factors that bring you closer and it comes down to that classic sort of thing. Like, yeah, advertising is on one level, but people take personal recommendations from friends a little more seriously. Mm-hmm. And Because as we get more into this establishment, right, that those large influences are being paid to advertise a thing. It's like the old uh, Super Bowl, I'm going to Disney World campaign. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Of like, we pay you $2,000, you say you're going to Disney World after you win the game. Everyone kind of knows it's an ad, but... At this this point, it transcends the ad, becomes the tradition. Exactly. And so we get to that point where these larger influencers, people kind of see them in some ways more as vectors of advertising in a lot of senses. And, you know, people meme on the constant sponsorship of, you know, this podcast sponsored by Audible or whatever, or Raid Shadow Legends. Take your pick. Both of which, when it comes, both, just, just for clarity's sake, both of which do not sponsor this podcast, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but the kind of the point is that when you're talking to people about mid-level streamers, more often than not, you go into one of these communities, if someone is considering like buying a new computer mm-hmm. or something, they're more likely to ask people in that Discord that they spend a lot of time in than they are to be like, oh, I saw cool AMD thing sponsored on whomever, so I'm going to buy AMD. Like, it's... The social relationship aspect often gets so taken out of it. Mm-hmm. That there's this idea of like, if I throw enough at influencers and get influencers to rep my product enough, people are just going to buy it. Right. And not recognize that, you know, it's, it's advertising or whatever. And this kind of springs up from, you know, years upon years of lifestyle vlogging and things like that. They've now just become glorified ads, um, extended ads in some cases. <laughs> <laughs> and so at least for me, like those medium sized communities are where people are actually getting that information. And don't get me wrong, entering in on like a safe bet of a large influencer is a good wide base. But it's kind of one of those things where if you want to be recognized culturally, you kind of have to find where you best fit and then become a member of that community in a way. Right. 
And so that's, that's what I end up guiding people to. No, I, and I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, just going back to that social aspect of it, uh, when it comes to advertising, I mean, if you're a part of a community and you, you're more inclined to, you know, to put more weight into the opinion of that community versus an ad you see, you know, out of a vlog, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, uh, it just reminds me of, um, I don't know if you've, you've heard of Linus Tech Tips, but his whole community there, if you go to their, yep. their forum pages and all that, they are literally insane with advice and all these, yep. these, these, these trains of thoughts that they, they roll with and they, they roll deep with these, with these yep. opinions. And so it, it goes back to that kind of uh, thinking for these companies. I mean, if you, sp- you get a sponsorship from him, this community is going to, you know, look at it no matter what. And a, and a good portion of them will buy this product if we get, if we get it sponsored through this one person. So that's, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm seeing now the, the, the trails, the, the, the breadcrumbs, if you, if you will, yeah. of how these companies are thinking and how it's being changed through people like you, of course, people who research the, the people invested in the scene. Mm-hmm. And so you've mentioned before you, you, you focus on people, you know, walking like showroom floors or convention halls. All that stuff. How does that differ? Uh, I guess in real, I mean, I know it's hard for you to imagine because we're in the middle of a pandemic still and it's kind of <laughs> hasn't been uh, an actual real life convention for a while. But when it comes to in person advertising versus online, you know, uh, ad campaigns, what do companies tend to focus on most when it comes to in person events? So in-person events, what I see a lot is activations at booths. So it's some sort of fun activity or making your booth really kind of stand out. And it's evolved a little bit more now from just like, you know, giving out swag. Mm-hmm. Come to our booth, fill out a survey. We give you, you know, a stress ball that has our logo on it type deal. But you're starting to see more and more companies kind of do these larger booths, these bigger activations or partnerships with stuff, you know, they want to do, and part of the company that I work for RTS, a lot of what they do is events and event activations. Mm -hmm. So it's helping people plan and execute on that. So I may come in with the research that says, Hey, you know, based on what you've told me, or even just gone expert advice, because sometimes people don't want to do a full research study. They just kind of want a little bit of consulting help. Um, so it's like, hey, if you want to do something at a dream hack, this is kind of how that community operates. This is some fun stuff that you could do there. And that even works digitally. You know, we've seen stuff like PAX Online or other online events kind of blow up in the same way and be moderately successful. But it's about finding ways to engage with a community that are genuine mm-hmm. and kind of have a sense of fun rather than being like a, yes, hello, consumer. <laughs> Would you like to buy our product? No, I can definitely see that. But um, <laughs> back to reduction of a number or community, right? Exactly. Uh, but it's. In, I mean, this is just fascinating to me the way these these companies kind of develop their you know their their train of thoughts around these communities. But for you, you've been in the space for a, a good while now. What has been the most interesting aspect of this job that you've discovered or that you've uh, already knew going into? But what has been the most interesting thing about this? I think one of the most interesting things is just the depth and crossover. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tried hundreds of times over the course of my career to draw or somehow visually kind of explain the metaphor to people of how gaming communities work and function Mm -hmm. because like mentally I can see it. It's fine. 
but it's this idea that you have as an individual and from a sociological concept, Anthony Bourdieu calls it habitus. Mm-hmm. It's basically the idea of like all the stuff that you do, all the communities that you're a part of, all the things that make up the context of your life. People on an individual basis are like that. They've got crossover in communities. You know, you look at your Discord sidebar, how many servers are you in? Do you know people that are like you that are in two or three of those servers? People have crossovers in the communities that they interact with as such that there's kind of this spider webbing network from, you know, the largest official forums around something to the smallest MMO guild or the smallest, you know, streamer discord, or even discord of friends. And information, culture, and context flows through that in very interesting ways. Mm. And looking into that, understanding that, picking that apart becomes something that I like to say anthropology works in thick data, not big data, mm. um, where it's the depth of what you're working. Actually, th- thick data comes from thick description, which is another anthropological concept. I won't get into that. This is in a lecture. But working in that thick data, the details, the irreducible complexity of human experience, you ask any group of people you know, the games that they're playing, you're going to get a different list, even if they are technically part of a participant list for you know, a study of the FGC or of the FPS community, the Overwatch community, whatever, understanding the other games that they play, the other aspects about their life that contribute to who they are, tells you a lot. And it's one of those things that is so difficult to drive home in some cases, because we've gotten this algorithmically driven, kind of data point driven, reduce it all to numbers, tell me what the numbers mean and do, I will accept those numbers with 100% confidence. Without any question of the sample size or anything else. But trying to get down to it to the real like stories of people is the most interesting thing that I kind of enjoy learning about at every turn of my career. Wow. So I'm assuming the uh, thick data, not big data, is tattooed on some interns, you know, some poor research interns <laughs> back somewhere, right? Not, not totally. <laughs> and really, you do need both because big yes. data gives you a good jumping off point. Um, another thing that I often kind of pitch tables. I can help you make your big data make sense. Yes. Because you may look at all these numbers and stats and whatever, but you may not be asking the question of like, okay, well, what, what's your sample size? Where do they come from? Who are they? It also makes great for research purposes to pull from that big data to then say, okay, let's identify what our participants need to look like to study the communities you want to be involved in based on your big data, your email list, whatever we can then have a much better idea of like who we want to interview, who we want to talk to. Gotcha. And then we can start opening that book and delving in deeper. Man, that's such, such an interesting paradigm of just the, the way you go about the research process is just, it seems so in depth to me. I mean, I guess this is why I didn't go to school for anthropology and research. <laughs> I mean, my, my, my version of research is I spent about 24 hours in depth on this one person and just, you know, watch videos on them read articles about them, look at their LinkedIn profile, look at all this other stuff. And that's, that's literally it for me. Then I ask them questions, make sure it's all good. <laughs> and that's, that's my interview process. And that's for you guys. It's, it's a totally different thing. It's, it's, it's a totally different goal you're, you're striving towards. Mm-hmm. And so when you're working with these companies, I mean, what has been the reaction from your clients in these companies to esports, right? Is it, you know, skepticism? Is it a curiosity? Is it, I mean, maybe it's like, 
it's full on. I'm on board. I don't know what it is, but I'm hopping on the boat anyways. Kind of, kind of attitude. <laughs> it's a little bit of all three. Um, you definitely get some that are like, I know what I'm doing. Um, I've, I've worked with devs before that are like, we want to make sure that we're hitting our community in a place that like resonates with them. And that's better. Cause we can't talk to everybody. You're a researcher. You can talk to a select group of them and kind of, you know, get data from that that will help us. Right. Then you also get the people that are like, I have no idea. Or the, Hey, we just got funding to do stuff with gaming communities. We don't know what that means. Can you tell us what gaming communities are? (laughs) So there's, there's the whole range of spectra to it. And then ultimately the findings, the findings can be really interesting, right? Because it's not often what people expect in some cases. I try to prep and prime them as best I can because, you know, it'll be like, okay, you know, what's your sample size? Okay. We're doing a study that's around 30 ish, 25, 30 people. We're going to do hour long interviews with them and we're going to dive into a variety of topics. We're going to compare those against like, you know, say your advertising personas or your segments or whatever. Right. And then I turn around and I'm like, all right, So here's your 20-page slide deck that kind of goes into those things. Here's a 60-page written report that details all of those things in depth, precisely, you know, the what, the why, the how. Mm -hmm. Because people don't realize kind of when you're in the early stages and you're talking, because we're so biased these days towards like big number, big sample, that when I show up and I'm like, all right, we can do this. We can interview like 25 people. 25 people seems really small. Mm-hmm. But it's a different kind of data, right? Right. I so mean, 25 people, 25 hours of interviews, plus if we're doing observations on top of that, of activations, of a show floor, of whatever, it becomes a lot of very complex data. And then you start having to like look for themes in that data, right? Mm-hmm. Because you may be having a conversation with someone about something, but what you're looking for is that when you ask similar questions, you know, what are the threads that are coming through? You ask people about community, what does that mean to them? Pulling out those meaning-making behaviors, not necessarily the meanings themselves, but the pathways to making that meaning. And so it can be very complex. And, you know, the best thing that I try to do is make sure that I'm very visual, make sure that I'm very hands-on with delivering that data in such a way that it makes sense. Because it can be overwhelming, you know, when you take someone from a simplistic, simplified, kind of like, here's the stats, here are the number. To like, all right, let's let's open that door, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's open the door, walk through, and let's actually see <laughs> what's on the other side. Wow, it's such a, such an awesome job you got, man. I mean, I'm sure the hours suck. I'm sure <laughs> 25 hours straight of interviews probably don't, doesn't sound too fun. I know I realize you don't interview for 25 hours straight, but the thought of it occurred in my head for a second. I'm like, man, I could not put that into a week. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, sometimes you'll have. I think the most intense I had was I did a Counter-Strike tournament Okay, um, where they set me up with a desk and they just set me up with a desk in the concourse in the stadium and then they just gave me a sign that said, talk to me about the event, get a free t-shirt. Oh, goodness. (laughs) And so basically 10 hours a day for two and a half days during the course of that tournament, I just had people lined up. (laughs) Wow. I had to have done like 60 interviews in that weekend. Talk about course, your activations. Of course, they were shorter. But, you know, I always tell people if they want me to walk the show floor, like, give me t-shirt vouchers. 
such a great because idea. Because it's like cold calling people, right? <laughs> yep. Except for you're walking around with a notebook and a backpack on a show floor like anyone else. And you just walk to someone it's like, hey, do you want to talk to me for 15 minutes and get a free t-shirt? They're like, yeah, about what? <laughs> <laughs> Who do you work for? <laughs> That's awesome, man. Just, you know, if you ever have a free t-shirt, you know, I'm, I, I've been talking to you for almost an hour. I'd say I deserve a free t-shirt. Just saying. But uh, running out of time here a little bit, so I just got to bring this up. My last question for you. What's something you wish more people would take away and understand about this new cultural development that has come out of gaming in recent years? That it's not... It's not consumer media entertainment as you know it. Mm. This is something that has grown out of communities. It's something that continues on the human experience level to be very community focused and the more detached from community it gets, the more kind of watered down the experience will be for everyone involved. Um, People thrive in kind of their vibrant little pockets that they've carved out for themselves, their own personal habitus. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of almost sacred space in and of itself. But there's these times when people and communities come together, be it events, be it, you know, larger kind of convergences of those groups where it becomes kind of a middle ground to interact with them. Right. And if people can kind of really grasp that there needs to be more of a community and human facing paradigm to all this and less of a numerical consumerist kind of endless pool of monetization paradigm, Mm -hmm. I think we'd build a lot more of a sustainable space that can then address, you know, a lot of the other, bigger problems that the community might be having. Fair point. Fair point. Logan, I, I want to thank you for coming on, man. This has been like a crazy, insightful, anthropological field trip of esports and how companies relate to it. I love it. It's it's awesome. You're like the Miss Frizzle of this of this scene. <laughs> you took me on the magic school bus. We rode down through all my questions. You answered them with a plum. I want to thank you so much for coming on, man. It it's such an awesome awesome topic that i think within this decade of the 2020s is about to explode and you're you're gonna have no idea what this industry will look like come 2030 i promise you that much (laughs) absolutely i mean that's kind of the uh the wonderful thing about this industry is that you can do as much predictive research as you want but you can never truly predict the future and anything that you're studying now becomes history in less than a month fair point Fair point. Now, if uh, if anybody has any questions for you, uh, Logan, like where can they get in touch with you? Who do they like look up? You know, on the internet, who do they Google? What is what does that process look like for people to wanting to get in touch with you? So, people who want to get in touch with uh, real time strategies can go to realtimestrat.com. I can be reached at logan.mclaughlin at realtimestrat.com, or you can hit me up in my Twitter DMs at vagrantanth. Anth is in anthropology. Vagrant, as in the name I've been using online for 20-some-odd years now. And just as a reminder, he is not a hobo. He's an actual person with a Discord and a computer that got in touch with me. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's Vagrant more in the sense that I just kind of like drift around between Ah. communities, places, etc. And I'm also a freelance consultant now, so it fits. There you go. It works out. All right. Well, if I ever need any uh, answers to uh, some of my questions regarding how the heck do I get more activation on this podcast? I'll come to you first. But uh, I want to thank you again for your time, Logan, and uh, good luck with the research. I know it's it's a hefty 
tall task coming your way once we get events going back up again, hopefully in the fall, okay. maybe winter. So uh, good luck to you there. Thank you, and thanks for having me. No problem. He's Logan McLaughlin. I'm Kevin Correa, and this is the Esports Network Podcast. Whoa.